Bonjour, I'm Terrence Galenko, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Russell Shorthill, welcome to Paris. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. As, yeah, you know, for a while when you wrote the, uh, you know, for a long period of time, I in, until I read your book, I thought you were Dutch. Mm-hmm. You know, all those years you spent in Amsterdam yeah, and yeah. in uh, New Amsterdam, island at the center of the world, and now I find out that you're uh, you're not. Yeah, but I did live in Amsterdam for a long time and and made a lot of uh, trips to Paris. I'm sure. And the uh, anyway, any anytime that one mentions the, the name Johnstown, I guess two things come to mind. If you're old enough, you remember the flood. Maybe not the actual flood in 1889, but the stories about it. Yeah. Part of the lore. The South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Another opportunity for the uh, the steel magnates to screw the local population. Or David McCulloch's very first book that he said he wrote because he. He wrote books that nobody else was writing. He wanted to know the story. And so why don't we just talk a little bit about the flood mm-hmm. to put things in perspective. Sure. And David McCullough was from Pittsburgh, so he knew right. the story of the flood from from that side because it was the Pittsburgh uh, steel magnates who uh, dammed the river and uh, in order to create a lake on top of a mountain, and they built their uh, vast cottages there. And from and this is the 1889 flood we're talking about. And uh, people, uh, engineers from the town, inspected it and said, you know, there are problems. This is dangerous. Uh, and there was uh, repeated back and forth over that. And then uh, after these um, rains, which happened every year, the dam broke, and uh, in 10 minutes, I think, 2,000 people in Johnstown, which was down. From the from the uh, uh, it's about four hundred and fifty feet up. Yeah, uh, so two thousand people died. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, maybe some of uh, Carnegie's uh, guilt uh, was reflected in all the libraries he built. <laughs> exactly, could this be. Was Carnegie could be. and Frick and all of those guys. Yeah, yeah. Although ultimately he was not a bad guy. Johnstown uh, uh, post-war, the period that you're basically describing. Uh, talk about that for those, unlike us, who didn't grow up in the Mon Valley, or in my case, the Mon Valley. Uh, what was it What was it like? What was life like in that little town, and who was there? Uh, well, it was. I think it was like a lot of um, little towns that are now kind of gutted Rust Belt towns. Uh, it was booming. You know, they call Johnstown back then, they called it Little Chicago. Uh, it was mainly the steel mills, and Johnstown was uh, uh, big in it before Pittsburgh was, uh, and then Pittsburgh um, jumped ahead of them. Um, and so because of that, it had a, a very robust population. It was very uh, working class, very uh, ethnic, um, Hungarians and Poles and Irish and, and Italians and— um, Lithuanians. Yeah, sure. Um so it was like a whole lot of other places. And the story that I tell, which is about the mob um, coming in there, uh, is a, is like a lot of other places, too. I mean, it's unique in that I'm zeroing in on my family and my grandfather, who, who along with his brother-in-law, ran the town. But there were guys like that in, in Scranton and in uh, McKeesport and in Erie and in Akron and in Fresno and Amarillo. And- yeah, I was I was a little shocked to see that New Kensington 
was such a a central figure in this this area, kind of an out uh, you know a LaRocca family uh, city outside of Pittsburgh. But I was you know Johnstown at least was fifty thousand people. How many people were living in New Kensington? Yeah, less than that. But uh, Johnstown was to steel what New Kensington was to aluminum. Uh, and uh, so there, you had uh, workers there, and you had m- money not not in the sense of you know glamour, but in the sense of you know back in those days, um, a working class person, a guy who worked in a steel mill, could uh, marry, buy a house, have a car, buy nice appliances which were coming out, and uh, retire the mortgage, reti- and have a decent life, you know, um, right. And uh, that was the case there, too. And since that was the case in towns like this, the mob was there because the mob was providing entertainment services, basically, in these small towns. And, you know, because you have to remember that in these days, it's really hard to imagine, but there was such a uh, heavy Christian moralizing blanket over the country, and gambling was one of these things that was, you know, frowned upon, to say the least, and I mean, it's ridiculous because uh, what they were doing in these towns, uh, what my grandfather was up to, uh, which was mob activity, was stuff that's all legal now. You know, I mean, and event, and in fact, the governments took it over. The state lotteries took over a lot of a lot of the action. Well, the numbers, or as it was known in Johnstown, the, the GI Bank was a significant part of that activity. Yeah, their um, the center of their operation was. A numbers game. Uh, they called it the GI Bank, and I think it was just this clever marketing ploy because it really came into existence just as the war thing. Uh, so it, it felt, I think it must have felt to people like they were somehow supporting the returning troops or something. Um, and the numbers, of course, came out of Harlem, and it was um, black people who had invented it. And it was, and they called these things a bank for a reason um, because. Blacks back then and Southern Italians um, were excluded from so many facets of life, including, I mean, you couldn't get a mortgage, you couldn't work in a bank. Um, So there was this great distrust of banks, and yet people needed those services. Uh, And people, starting in Harlem, but people told me the same thing in towns like Johnstown, thought of their daily number play as kind of like an investment. So you would put a dime every day on your same number, and maybe it would take 10, 15 years, but eventually you'd hit. And when it hit, that was the return on your investment. It was like your CD was maturing. That's for, those, for those in Iowa who may not be aware of what we're talking about, explain the concept of policy. Uh, you, you play three numbers. You can play uh, the, the, the numbers. You can play it in a number of different ways every day. And what they did in Johnstown, which is, I think, similar to other places, is they took the the final numbers from, in other words, they weren't pulling numbers out of a hat, which you might mistrust that somebody's uh, messing around with them. So you could just look in the paper and see what the numbers are and see if you won or not. Uh, yeah, New York, it was the final numbers on the uh, okay, handle yeah, at Aqueduct yeah, it, in it, Belmont. And it varied or Charlestown uh, periodically. For you. They they would change uh, what they were basing it on, but it was something, in other words, that had some trust built into it. You could see it wasn't being manipulated. I remember uh, Meyer Lansky, not personally, but he had commented when somebody said, "Meyer, what are you doing with nickel and dime bets?" Say, so, have any idea how many nickels and dimes there are in the world? 
That's exactly it. And that's why they were in places like this, not because there, there, there were a lot of rich people there, but because there were a lot of people who just worked every day and had, some, had spending money. Well, it seems like there was a lot less prostitution than I would imagine, or you chose not to delve into that. Uh, certainly the numbers are certainly uh, pinball, which I didn't realize what, you might describe that, how important it was. I mean, I played it, and here in Paris, you know, the flipper, back in the few watch a film like Breathless, everyone was playing pinball. Yeah, that, that's a good uh, reference. Um, um, yeah, I, I, so basically, with my book, I, what we're talking about is my grandfather and his brother-in-law, and I decided uh, I was going to write uh, the story of my grandfather, who, uh, whose life tracks the rise and fall of the mob pretty accurately. He came up with uh, Prohibition. He was a kid uh, selling moonshine on the streets out of Coke bottles. Uh, when Prohibition ended, he shifted, as people did uh, all over the country, into gambling as this new revenue stream. And I was named. Yeah, and that's you right. were named for him. He that's was right. And, uh, so that was an extra level of curiosity for me because he was a very dark figure in my childhood. And uh, so it took a lot of prodding and false starts before I finally decided, OK, no, I'm going to go at this uh, and explore what it was. So then. You know, I and and the, what really gave me the in was um, I was leery of starting this because those guys were dead and gone, and I write nonfiction, and I didn't want to make things up. Uh, but there was a group of old guys in town who were the young guys then, who looked up to them, who admired them, and and I was amazed continually how many people in town not just remembered them but admired them uh, and saw them as kind of champions guy you know um and uh these guys i i kind of grilled them all on what they did it was okay gambling that's nice but what else did they do what about prostitution what about drugs and everyone told me that they drew the line there they held the line there and it late in later stages when drugs were really uh flooding in they wouldn't go there one part of what the you know why they were kind of pushed aside um, maybe, maybe they're wrong, but I never found any evidence of that. And I, I think, you know, I, in a way, my book is about, uh, it, it's the story of the small town mob in America, uh, because everybody knows the story of Chicago and New York and all that. And some, th in a lot of ways, there, the small town mob was similar to big cities, but in other ways, it, um, it was quite different because of the size of the community. And I think, uh, for example, the level of violence. Um, there was very little violence, i.e. murder, uh, in a place like Johnstown. And I think that was because a community of that size w couldn't tolerate it. You know, you would be bringing, forcing the authorities to count on you. Whereas everybody knew each other and, and, they, would, and they would feel like, you know, society was falling apart, you know. Uh, so there was, and, and as long as they kept things relatively uh, clean, uh, everything operated in the open. Everybody over a certain age who I talked to knew them, knew who they were, Russ and Little Joe. They knew that uh, where they operated out of, which was a pool hall called City Cigar that was two doors from City Hall, and they paid off the mayor. He would come, the mayor would come every day, and um, they knew who the bookies were, where they went, where they hung out. They knew the the pinballs and how it, you know, um, and it was just in the open. And the and the, the the payoffs were made to the authorities and 
and there was an agreement that you know once a month or so they would um, they'd get a call from the police and saying okay we're going to come at Friday at five and we have to do a bust. And uh, so they would know everybody would clear out. They leave one guy there, like an, usually an older guy who didn't have uh, anything to lose, really. And they'd pay him, you know, a couple of dollars to take the fall. And they'd leave a handful of betting slips. So he would do that. He'd spend the night in prison. And then they'd write it up in the paper the next day. And you could kind of restart. Yeah, let's go back to the beginning. Antonio Sciotto in, in, in Sicily. Uh, who arrived in that unpronounceable town where the groundhog appears every February 2nd. What's the name of that town? <laughs> Grandfather. Uh, Antonino Sciotto uh, was from. So I, in order to get a handle on my grandfather and to get a handle on how this all started, you know, the whole story of Southern Italian immigration to America and how that gave rise to the mob, I went back a generation. I went to Sicily, went to the little village in the mountains above Messina called San Pier Nicetto, which is where Antonino uh, was from, and kind of followed him and about four million other people who um, took, you know, it was, it, it, there's this, people don't realize this funny overlap um, the American Civil War ends, slavery is uh, no more. And you've got all these people that need to replace the labor that uh, former slaves no longer wanted to do. So they start advertising. And, and at the same time, unification happens in Italy. And when unification happened, the North, which is all, had always been very prejudiced against Southern Italians, <laughs> yeah, and it became even more pronounced. And this poverty in the South got much worse. And so those two things coincided. You have all these plantation owners then sending people to southern Italy to recruit people, to, to recruit workers. So, uh, And then after that, it was coal miners, coal mine companies uh, doing this. So my great-grandfather answers one of these calls and ends up in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and, and is uh, working in the coal mines. Then he sends for his girlfriend. Now, a little subplot is he had a wife and two kids already in this little Sicilian town. And my family had whispered about this. They thought maybe this was the case. And I, in fact, found out that he did have a wife. I know her name and who her kids were and all that. Um, and uh, so then she comes. They uh, live for a while in Punxsutawney under their Italian names, Anna Maria Previte and Antonino Sciotto. And then they make this move to Johnstown, and when they show up in Johnstown, suddenly they're Tony and Mary Shorto. So they kind of Americanize themselves with that that move. Um, and uh, uh, you know, in following them, I was kind of following, as I say, these like four million people who, in that era, um, made this move and 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 transformed the country and ra raised a lot of anti-immigrant fervor. Uh, because, you know, suddenly Americans thought of themselves as this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation, and suddenly you're being overrun by these Catholics, and, you know, the, that Catholicism was a big scare. People were really afraid of it. And that brings about the rebirth of the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and, and so you have parades in the streets, parades in Washington, D.C., you know, the guys in their white robes and all that. <laughs> Yeah, oh, sure, all over. And, and in my little town, you had burning crosses on the hillsides and, uh, and the whole deal. And it was all over this new threat. The, 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 the Pope was invading America, basically. 
Parenthetically, one quick thought before we continue with that. I was astonished. There isn't a single Jew in Johnstown. Where did you go to buy your Easter suits? There are certainly Jews in Johnstown. Not in your I, book. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just did. That was not, uh, I didn't get, people asked me, what about the, there was kind of a Polish mafia. And somebody just emailed me and said, you know, there was a, a kind of Hisp Hispanic mafia. So, yeah, these are things that I didn't get to. Um, but, no, I interviewed Glosser Brothers, which was, yeah, and that was a prominent, prominent Jewish family in town. Uh, and I interviewed uh, Glossers, and I interviewed a number of um, Jewish families in town. And it's just, you know, at a certain point, you know, the cutting room floor, you decide what you're going to focus on. But no, there were, there were, yeah. And uh, um, um, the, but the, the, the Jews in town, the stories that I heard were mostly them as card players, like in the games that my grandfather organized and, you know, guys who would like, bet ten thousand dollars on a on a single hand and that kind of thing you know um but i you know there i'm sure there was activity you know other right. kinds of activity um but i i didn't go there well you have all you have all these colorful characters you know frankie uh frankie filia who apparently was the uh the touchstone that launched this uh little joe regino rip slomanson i want you go back to see him when he's on his deathbed in miami kind of kind of a a big change from what he was when you were young. And of course, the uh, late lamented Pepe Di Falco, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a, an amazing town, drinking a lot of Iron City beer, I guess, <laughs> a little bit of Canadian yeah. club on the back. You know? uh, how much of this were you conscious of growing up? Were you just a kid and you go to see Nona and she makes a little pasta? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, we were uh, a, an Italian-American family, but it was kind of to that extent spaghetti sauce and very affectionate and lots of hugs and kisses all the time. Uh, I was aware, uh, you know, I think every family has this um, certain things that they don't talk about, but kids somehow absorb it anyway. They know this is a thing. So I knew uh, that my grandfather was involved in this kind of stuff. Uh, but I also knew that we don't go there. We don't talk about it. Um, and I kept that um the awareness and that sort of wall around it um, into adulthood. And then I'm, you know, basically making a career um, writing history. And yet this didn't occur to me, you know, it didn't kind of penetrate my consciousness that, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I can write about that. What a great story. Until Frankie, who you mentioned, Frankie Filia, who was my, is my mother's cousin. Uh, uh, I'm, the the figure that we're talking about at the center of this is my father's father, Russ Russ Shorto. Um, so my mother's cousin Frankie, uh, when he was a kid, he worked for him. He ran numbers and he uh, worked in the pool room. And um, everybody who stayed in town kind of internalized that you know we don't talk about this vibe. Yeah, but it, yeah, but that sounds a little too. Um, just kind of the omerta or too, just... uh, yeah, too official, you know, this was just more like, you know, people just start, don't feel comfortable talking about it. It was that kind of thing, but, but people would make a little passing reference and a little chuckle. That was the way it uh, worked, but everybody in town kind of maintained that Frankie, he was a jazz musician, still is. Um, he left town when he was about 20, moved to Las Vegas, spent his whole career there playing stand-up bass and singing, you know, Fly Me to the Moon and all that kind of stuff. Then he retired, came back home. And several years ago, I was home uh, over Christmas and uh, 
it was a couple of days after Christmas and a group of us at my parents' house and somebody said, let's go down and see Frankie's playing in this little club. So we went down and we're all gathered around in the, uh, in the break between the sets. And he looks over at me and he says, Russell, you're the writer. What are we, what are you going to do about the story? And I said, what story? And he said, your grandfather, the mob. And everybody, all these other relatives who stayed in town, they all kind of froze, you know, because you don't say this openly. But for him, these were just golden memories because he had left so long ago. So he was the one that kind of burst the bubble for me and made me realize this is a story. It's not just a story about my immediate family. It's a story about America in that post-war era and and it's about this thing that people don't know, which is uh, how the mob was in all these little towns all over the country and how it was just woven into life. You know, they were providing a service and they were in many ways looking up to the uh, American icons, Ford and Frick and Carnegie. And, you know, these guys, they were doing the same kind of thing. They were those guys were paying off the they were manipulating political races and paying off politicians and in order to get their way in steel well, or whatever in, in a sense was. you know apg and e in california the bank of america was very active in financing uh, jewish filmmakers uh, not filmmakers but the owners yeah the, the louis mayors and the jack warners uh started out making loans to uh, local italians in north beach who couldn't couldn't get a mortgage so he basically loaned them money on their on the strength of their character uh, and in, in effect, he was a, a perhaps a more legitimate uh, kind of mob, but it's the same idea. Yeah, uh, and then someone who is on the outside can't get in. Yeah, and that whole thing of legitimate, you know, I did a, I, I'd never researched the history of organized crime until I started this book. And I learned that, that there's a, a very good, if you're interested in really getting into it, textbook, which is called Organized Crime. It's the standard textbook. It's written by a guy named Howard Abedinsky. And uh, he talks about how, first of all, these guys, meaning these Southern Italian immigrants in the early 20th century, um, became enamored of these titans of industry and decided that they were going to follow them, including doing things like opening branch offices once they decided to. And that's exactly what happened in Johnstown. It was a guy from Philadelphia who came to Johnstown, and um, he was sent to open the branch office because it was a booming town now. He uh, met a, a girl who happened to be my grandfather's sister, married her. My grandfather was this uh, young uh, card sharp and gambler who knew the whole town at that level. So they formed this alliance, and then that's how they opened the franchise. And ran it together. Little Joe, yeah. And that's how, and that worked that way, I think, all over the country. They There was this... Uh, you know, so so anyway, my point was that um, Howard Abedinsky will tell you that um, they uh, this notion of organized crime came into being. It was it was people in authority who were basically WASP authority who were doing the same. These were they were they were using the same tactics, but they didn't like these either Italian or Irish or whatever they were honing in on their territory. So they invented the term organized crime to distinguish what they were doing from sort of, quote, legitimate activity. Well, let's talk about uh, Pepe de Falco. Well, first, we should probably, we, we're talking all, all around your grandfather. Let's talk a bit more about uh, Rosario. 
who I guess I don't know if you learned yeah, this from his father. father but, um, shall we say uh, that fidelity was uh, not in I, his contract? I said contract. before when I was growing up, uh, he was this very kind of dark, mysterious, um, a, a figure to be avoided. That's how I I really felt, and I I of course took that from the way the 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 um, the adults in the family acted toward him, and. And yet it was not, I think, I think they could have been, they would have been okay with the fact that he, he and his brother-in-law ran the town and they did all this gambling all over and all that. But really it was, it was his, he was a really uh, serious binge drinker. And he was this uh, kind of serial womanizer who um, had children with different women around town. And not only that, but then would decide, would, you know, send them away to, to have the baby. And then when they came back would decide, Okay, you you can't raise that baby, but this couple over here doesn't have a child, so we're going to give it to them. You know, so he it was kind of like it, to me, it feels like a medieval, you know, uh, warlord or something. This kind of behavior. So that's the sort of thing that, um, you know, that was one of his personality traits. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. It's so he didn't sound terribly that violent, kind of behavior. Is what may, certainly scarred my family and beyond, and that's the sort of thing that that created this. I mean, by the time I was really aware and and kind of uh, around, he was he'd stayed in town, but the family had by then pushed him out. My grandmother pushed him out of the house, and and uh, so as I say, I was aware of him as this uh, really scary figure. The biggest surprise to me, though, in doing this research is when I went back and did this. Uh, you know, try to get behind him and start in Sicily and come forward and watch this whole migration and how his parents are part of it and how in the face of this, you know, extreme level of discrimination, he was a kid on the streets and, and, and selling moonshine and, and that was the only, and he was a really smart kid and how he rose then in this, uh, uh, in the ranks of what was developing. I saw that he really had no choice. I mean, there were no, he, he couldn't have like, here's, you know, option A, you know, help form the mob. Option B, you can go to college and become a lawyer. Well, that, there was no option B. So, um, or yeah, exactly. So I, um, I, I developed some sympathy for him, which to me oh, go into the was, lines, I mean, it doesn't sound surprising the way I sketch it out, but to me it was surprising because, uh, you know, when you're raised with a certain strong, sense and feeling about a person to suddenly flip that around. Um, that was, that was, uh, uh, maybe the biggest revelation to me in the book. Yeah. I knew, I think in a positive way, I just interviewed a woman last week, uh, Sylvia Foti, Lithuanian from Chicago. Uh, she felt growing up in, in uh, Marquette park, she might as well have been born in Lithuania, but discovered in through this research that her grandfather killed by the Soviets in 36 after the war, in fact, was personally responsible for killing wow. 8,000 Jews and has to put aside or somehow uh, recognize what he did and recognize the other aspect that she grew up yeah. with. Very difficult to get to that. Yeah, I mean, when you do history, um, I find that you have to, whoever the figure is that you're researching, you have to, uh, at least the way I do it, you have to try to get into their skin, which means seeing the world to some extent from their side, um, the way they see it. Now, later in your process, you can step out and look at them from a distance, 
Um, but you know, you almost have to try to develop some kind of sympathy for them for for a while in order to portray portray them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. Uh, and nuance is the you know that whole thing of nuance even extends to the notion of um, the mob. When you say the mob or the American mafia, um, you know you immediately have uh, associations which come from films and novels and and all that. And you know not to discount that entirely, but um, it was woven in. I mean, what I I think in essence what I try to portray in the book was. It was woven into very ordinary family life. Uh, so in a way, I mean, a couple of the reviews of my book said, you know, this isn't really about the mob. It's about an American family. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of my point. It's, it's you know, yeah, small town America in the 50s. We could it, it could be Peoria. It could be any uh, Missoula, Montana that you mentioned. That's yeah. a mafia connection. Uh, it's what it was that more than likely the second generation that had arrived from all of these places in Central and Europe and Southern Europe, uh, who spoke English and had, the path was somewhat paved by their, by their parents, but they hadn't got to the next level yet. You know, it wasn't, you didn't see a lot of, you know, a lot of Italian kids going to uh, colleges. I don't know if Penn State or Pittsburgh had a, maybe by the time you got there, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't the norm, you know, in, in New York, uh, most of us who were Jewish went to one of the city universities, you know, uh, Baruch downtown or Hunter College where I went or uh, Queens College because we couldn't get it. We couldn't afford to get in or weren't accepted at the Harvards and all the Ivy League schools. So we did yeah. what we could. Uh, and and you know, it's funny, you, but we had it's funny you mentioned path. Baruch that uh, when I was researching the book, I was asked to be a writer in residence at Baruch College. And so since I was doing this project, I made my writing workshop writing family history. And um, so and so it was it ended up being this amazing experience because still the by and large, the people, the students to come to Baruch are working class families from all over New York who are uh, from all over the world. And so I had, I think, 16 kids and um, I asked them, you know, I said, all right, we're going to spend the semester working on a family story. And I want you to pick to start with, pick three possible family stories. And out of those, you know, you'll focus on one. So the next week we had like 50 family stories from all over the world. And it was just such a uh, uh, I wasn't prepared for it. It was such an overwhelming um, uh, tidal wave of really rich material from, you know, I mean, this one guy, his grandmother was from Cuba and his father was from Norway. And it was a story of how they met and, you know, and these two different, this clash of cultures. And, and um, so uh, I, I became then enamored of, and in the process of doing this book, I became really um, uh, uh, a, a believer in people doing family history as a way to kind of understand yourself. And, um, and uh, so then I, so I did it then. And then afterwards I spun it into a, a, an online course that I have called tellyourfamilystory.com. And again, with that, I get people, you know, just signing up and, and, you know, you, it, it's um, what I, uh, what I said to Dave Davies on fresh air. Um, he asked me about it and I said, it's, it's a, a wonderful experience to undertake if you have the guts, because, you know, you're going to find that uh, you grew you're looking into a story that you always knew from childhood, but when you really get to it, almost inevitably, it's going to be something completely different from what you, from the, the way it was presented to you. Sure. 
Well, I, I think, you know, the, the value in that, I know I, I wrote a, a memoir, uh, Paris Par Hazard, From Bagels to Brioche, about 10 years ago. You know, I, I was eating bagels in Brooklyn, and theoretically, I'm eating brioche here. But uh, the point was, in when, you st when you're writing and you go back in your, in your memory and you start remembering things, well, things come back that you forgot about. Uh, things that are impacting your life today that you've forgotten about. Yeah. People that you had forgotten about. And then the other value in it is it, it has a universal truth to it. And I, I had a hard time trying to figure out how to tell the story. But once I realized, get my ego out of it, and no one really gives a damn that it's me, it's the story that's going to resonate with people and how it resonates to them. And after reading, uh, reading your book, I contacted my 93-year-old uh, uncle in Monongahela, and uh, he said, you know, he knew about the numbers racket. Sure, sure. You know, no, you're right. He was married. He was married to an Italian, which my grandmother was not happy with. And when her mother died, I remember I can still. This is what, 65 years ago. The minute you walked into that house, the smell of the garlic impregnated no, in the, that the sound kitchen, cut out again. I can't. I can't hear you. Oh, the the garlic in that kitchen when you walked in there, I blew you over, man. It must have been like <laughs> 20 years worth of garlic. Yeah. Built into the built into the kitchen. She had a little <laughs> hair back in a bun, the black yeah. shoes, yeah. and the black widow's dress. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's just it, it's it takes you back, it yeah. takes you back, and I think it's very worthwhile. And particularly, uh, I mean, you and I are of uh, we're, I'm a little bit older, but we're pretty much of a generation that knew our grandparents. I even vaguely knew my great grandparents, and it's almost like uh, like the show. And not many people are going to be left that can reach back and have access. To that material on, on a personal level so I, I think it is important that's uh, what i'm saying uh to the people i mean do it and do it now and you know and i i just as 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 uh happy i as i am that i stopped and and i did probably 250 hours worth of interviews for as the which was like the basis of the book and then i gir undergirded that with fbi freedom of information act requests and uh, courthouse records and all that um but doing that kind of thing now, I, I'm, I, the whole time I was kicking myself, why didn't I do this when my grandmother was alive? I could have gotten all these stories from her, which, you know, she would give little drop little things here and there. But do it now. Whatever you got now, mm -hmm. do it because in a few years it's going to be gone. And when I I was surprised, I thought well, most of these people, when I sat down with them, they're going to be very hesitant, like, no, I don't want to go on the record with this. I don't want to talk about that. For the most part. It was the opposite. For the most part, people, I think, had an awareness that this is history and it's it's about to vanish. So they were kind of eager to uh, to sit down and to see what I came up with, because everybody just had their little window onto things. But they, there, there was so much of the story they don't know. So now in Johnstown on on Facebook, there are these very lively uh, 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 chat groups going on about my book, you know, and all these people who saying, oh, I knew this guy. And you know, here's some more information about that guy. And so it's starting to build this whole other uh, whole other layer. Well, you know, when you, when you talk about your students, you know, we're living in a, uh, I, I was married to a, a Latina from Mexico City, or uh, Guadalajara, pardon me. Uh, so he had a Jewish kid from uh, uh, Brooklyn married to the uh, granddaughter of the governor of the state of Jalisco in the 50s. You know, <laughs> I can't get too much further away from in that and, and raise uh, two children who, uh, I grew up speaking Spanish and English, and my daughter lives here in Paris. So that, you know, already it's kind of where we are. You yeah. know, and if you're, uh, and you have the real difficulty today is what happens when the uh, uh, 
the Latino brings home a, Chi a Chinese girlfriend. The mother already wants him to marry somebody who's Catholic and, you know, and, and Latino, another thing. So I wish they would start writing this now while they're still young, because that's a whole other dimension to what you and I've experienced, you know, being essentially children of immigrants in this country. You're right. That's and that's what I mean. For the most part, I think the people that sign up for my online course are probably over 50, because when you're older, you suddenly feel that pull, you know, of history. But I was really gratified when I taught at Baruch that these kids who were all like 2021. 20, they were really into it and they wanted to, they all had this story that, you know, that's in their family that they wanted to explore and they wanted to tell. So that's another age, you know, when you're older, you want it, but also when you're, when you're just coming into the world, you, I think you have this sudden interest uh, to like, you know, you're, you're saying, who am I, which, and if you're smart, that the answer to that means who, who were they, who were my parents and my grandparents? Once again, for my listeners, uh, what is that website again? Uh, tellyourfamilystory.com. Perfect. Uh, one, one final thought. Uh, what propelled you? Who were the, your role models, if there were any at, at home, that directed you to, to college and an entirely different tra trajectory? Uh, we haven't talked about my father at all, but he really was the uh, the one that he became my my research partner. He was my the the mobs my mobster grandfather. I was not a big fan of, of his father. Right. They, my dad, to his credit, he and his father didn't speak for much of my life. They really had a, a, a strong, a serious uh, disagreement there. Um, and yet, when I asked my dad, will you help me work on this book, looking into your father, uh, he was there with me the whole, the whole time, introducing me to guys sitting down and shooting the breeze and, you know, bringing up whole stories and things. But my dad, when I was a kid, he was uh, just, he was a salesman. He was a door-to-door -door salesman. He sold encyclopedias. And, and yeah, he was. And um, he uh, was this, I think, from selling encyclopedias and the fact that he dropped out of school and then went back to get his high school diploma, he just had instilled in him the value of, of reading, for one thing, education in general, but in particular reading. And so he really kind of uh, introduced that in me. And that's what kind of, stayed with me yeah i didn't mean to minimize your father but uh, i no 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 absolutely but i i noticed that and apparently your grandfather invited him to join the mob and he declined uh that was the story that i was told but in the book uh i i discover that it was uh more complicated well you know when when the uh i guess what they say when the when the story is more interesting than the truth tell the story this is uh, li li Liberty <laughs> Well, I, I Liberty tried to Valance. do both. <laughs> Russell, uh, thank you very much. This has been fun. Uh, perhaps at some point in the future, we can talk about the Dutch, the old Dutch and the new Dutch, uh, Peter Stuyvesant and sure. those guys. We'll find some pretext for doing Happy that. To do it. And But this has been great, and yeah. uh, I, I enjoyed the book very much, and I uh, I hope that people will get out of it what, I, what you hope that they would get out of it and trace back those family histories. Uh, tell your family history. <laughs> Tellyourfamilystory.com is the website, and the book is called Small Town. My guest has been Russell Shorto. A pleasure. Thank you, Russell. Thanks so much. Great conversation. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at Terrence at Paris-Expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at Paris-Expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five 
weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.